0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good
1: afternoon. My name is Scott Worden, and I am the director of the Afghanistan and Central Asia Program for the U.S. Institute of Peace. I'm delighted to welcome all of you here today on this Friday afternoon for an important and timely discussion on the Afghan peace process and prospects for its success. For those that don't know USIP, we were founded by Congress in 1984 as an independent national institute dedicated to the proposition that peace is possible, peace is practical, and peace is essential for U.S. security. USIP pursues this vision of a world without violent conflict by working on the ground with local partners. We provide people, organizations, and governments with the tools, knowledge, and training to manage conflicts so that it does not become violent and to resolve it when it does. This discussion couldn't come at a better time because the peace process is very active right now. Uh, In Kabul, they have just concluded a consultative loya jirga, assessing priorities for a peace process by the Afghan people. And currently, Ambassador Zama Khalil Khalilzad is negotiating with the Taliban in the series of discussions they have had on protecting U.S. national security interests from terrorism in Afghanistan. The USIP has been deeply involved in Afghanistan since 2002. We've had an office in Kabul since 2008. We work closely with the Afghan government, as well as with civil society organizations in Afghanistan on programs, research, and ideas to, reduce the violence in the country, and to improve stability going forward. The support to the Afghan peace process is USIP's highest priority right now. We're working closely with the US government and the Afghan government, but we're also mindful that peace processes don't succeed and they don't last if the people in a country are not behind it. And therefore, it's essential to have civil society, women, youth, and other groups uh, included in the process so that it will be successful. We have a great panel here this morning. It will be led and moderated by Johnny Walsh. He's worked for the last two years with USIP as a senior expert on peace processes in Afghanistan. He has a long career in the State Department, both working with the SRAP, the Special Representative uh, for Afghanistan, as well as on Iraq and Middle East issues. I'll turn it over to him for introductions and thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much, Scott. And thank you to you all for coming. Welcome to USIP. Uh, And thank you to everyone on C-SPAN for joining us as well. Um, Just to set the stage very briefly, I I think it's a particularly interesting moment at which to be having this conversation um, due to three very recent developments that are still very much underway. Right as we speak, uh, Zal, Ambassador Khalilzad, is in Doha for a fresh round of talks with the Taliban. Uh, This week also in Kabul, as Scott mentioned, Over 2,500 people gathered uh, in a loya jirga, which has been considered one of President Ghani's signature initiatives for this moment in the peace process. And only, I think, less than two weeks ago, there was a very near miss in Doha at what would have been the first gathering among the Taliban, the Afghan government, and other Afghans to have a serious discussion of the political issues that could potentially end this war. And I I think what brings these three developments together is there's a, a longstanding vital question that's finally coming to a head, which is how can we collectively turn positive movement on US Taliban discussions into a serious peace negotiation among Afghans that would actually have a chance of ending the war? Because it's not something I think all would agree that just the US and Taliban can negotiate by themselves. And so, As we all grapple with this question, the challenges overlaid are enormous. Um, In the United States, both parties, I think, are impatient to ultimately get out of Afghanistan. There's an insurgency that remains extremely strong and is at least tempted to attempt to wait the US out. Uh, The Afghan political class, I think it's fair to say, pretty uniformly wants peace, but is deeply divided, including on how to achieve peace. And that's to say nothing of upcoming presidential elections in both Afghanistan and the United States that make everything in this space just a little more complicated. And meanwhile, the war is really more horrible than ever. I I think it looks quite likely that the 2019 fighting season will be a very, very bloody one, despite uh, efforts by many parties to achieve a near-term ceasefire. The 2018 fighting season um, reclaimed Afghanistan's sorry place as, I think, the most violent conflict in the world. And so it shows the urgency, not, not just the political logic, but the urgency of trying to find a way out of this war. Um, and a, a final comment before I introduce the panelists themselves is, I hope that conversations like this can help advance the larger thinking about what compromises actually can end a war of this kind. Because at root, a peace process is not about achieving what any one of us, any one party wants. It's about what they can potentially give or do to accommodate the other side. And that goes for all of them. So for every side, it means on some level, abandoning the dream of, ultimate, of, of comprehensively winning the war. It means accepting that if there is a peace agreement, It will involve some amount of legitimacy for one's enemy. It might involve political power for one's enemy, a degree of it anyway. So this is not to be defeatist, but it's that no peace process has ever succeeded without working through these issues. And and I hope discussions among panelists of the caliber we have today, discussions of the sorts going on in Kabul and Doha can help advance that question. And so, uh, Moving from uh, my immediate left, our panelists include Luchfela Najafizada. He's the um, head of Tolo News TV, uh, itself one of the finest products of post-2001 Afghanistan, um, truly a gifted journalist, one of the keenest observers of Afghan politics that I've ever dealt with. Jarrett Blanc is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was previously the Deputy Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, among other jobs. And he played a leading role in some really important US efforts on the Afghan peace process during very difficult years when I too was working there uh, at the State Department. Belkis Ahmadi is a senior officer here at the US Institute of Peace. Over 20 years of experience on Afghanistan, um, very deep networks, especially among Afghan civil society, women's groups. She's just returned from Kabul to speak with many of these groups about where we stand in the peace process. I I hope we hear a little more about that later on. And Scott Smith is a senior fellow here at USIP and recently returned as the political director for UNAMA, which is to say the United Nations mission inside Afghanistan, who is the lead on all political issues. So I thank each of you for joining us. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. I'd ask maybe each of you give five to ten minutes of opening thoughts about we stand where we stand in the peace process. I may fire a question or two at you after that, and then I look forward to uh, a discussion with the room. So let's look Philip perhaps you'd open.
3: Thank you um, We were about to go to Doha, but the plane didn't come. <laughs> so uh, I thought I should probably take a plane go to d c and I'm glad uh, uh, that I'm here today and uh, uh, it's great to see a lot of friends, thanks to USIP, for arranging this uh, event. Um, I think there is a very, sen- very strong sense of urgency uh, uh, at the moment uh, for Afghanistan to reach some sort of a political settlement. Um, I'm carefully not using the word peace because uh, uh, it, it uh, has different meanings to a lot of people. Um, But one should probably put a step back and see uh, if uh, the peace process in Afghanistan is a new thing or not. Uh, And who wants peace in Afghanistan and who is against peace? Um, uh, The earliest memory I I have uh, from my childhood uh, is uh, when a rocket landed at our house in Kabul and we left... Uh, and, uh, I think it was in '93. We left for for mazar Sharif in the north. So uh, uh, that was associated uh, with war and conflict and civil war and all sorts of war. But at the same time, in the past four decades that we witness uh, uh, conflict in Afghanistan, there has been uh, on and off efforts for peace as well. Some of us, like these. Was here, remember and cover some of some of those developments uh, for, for 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 so many for so many years and decades. So, so talking about peace is not necessarily a very very new thing, um, uh, and uh, it's not just you know today we we wake up and trying to uh, come to a political settlement, and that's why it's important to to learn from the lessons of the past uh, uh, a few decades. Also. I think we shouldn't waste time uh, in Afghanistan to identify who is, who is uh, for peace and who is against peace. Peace. Th- there, is, there is such a unanimous consensus on, um, uh, uh, on, on peace. All Afghans want peace. This is such a uh, desperate desire uh, for, for, for all of us uh, as Afghans and for our international partners. At Tolo News alone, we have lost 11 colleagues in just the past three years. So this is personal. Uh, and that has to come to an end. Uh, I think all Afghans want peace. Why the, why the peace processes in the past have not delivered um, and, and failed? I think it, it would be a fundamental mistake if today we try to uh, uh, draw a zero-sum game to define who's going who's gonna to win, who's going to lose. Are we going to lose in Kabul? The Taliban are going to win. Are the Taliban going to lose? Where are we going to win? I think that would be a strategic mistake if we start thinking like that. So there has to be, as Johnny you said, some sort of a compromise on both fronts. And that was th- the fundamental reason why the efforts of the, of, of the 90s um, uh, didn't really deliver, uh, because that produces winners and losers for short terms. And then... Uh, uh, Subsequently, it uh, resulted in continuation of conflict throughout the country. Uh, I think a zero-sum game approach uh, would, be, would be a fundamental mistake. Coming to today's efforts, I think Ambassador Khalilzad um, uh, uh, has it clearly defined that there are two areas for, for the peace process, the American-centric uh, approach and then the Af- Afghan-centric approach. Uh, the American centric approach focused on counterterrorism and uh, drawdown uh, uh, is fundamentally important for the United States, but it's deeply linked, its success and failure, to the Afghan components of the deal, which are uh, uh, ceasefire and uh, uh, an ultimate Afghan settlement. The question is how are we going to get to that settlement, right? Uh, if there is no winner and loser, are we, are we uh, uh, sitting in Kabul, in the media, in the private sector, in the government, uh, as you said, the gains of the past 18 years? How much of a compromise are we going to make? You know, wh- what, are, what are at stake? I personally believe that any political settlement uh, is a one step back, um, uh, probably, hopefully tactically, um, uh, for, for some of us. And then it should be uh, a step forward for the Taliban. So, so we can tell the Taliban that uh, you know, this Afghanistan of today uh, has come a long way that it can absorb all parties, including, including the Taliban. I think the common grounds uh, uh, for, uh, for, for, for the Taliban and uh, the rest of the Afghan society uh, is, is an Islamic republic. I, I fundamentally believe that that, that, is, that that is the solution. Uh, I asked Ambassador Khalilzad in a similar town hall meeting last week in Kabul uh, that what, do we, what can we make out of uh, – what, what if we put the Islamic Emirate and Islamic Republic in a mixer? What do we get out of it? And he said, well, the word Islam, um, uh, we can find in, bo- in both. And then in terms of, uh, Islamic, in terms of uh, you know, an Emirate system or a republic system, that would be a difficult debate. But it, I think it's critical for, for, for us to engage with the Taliban. Uh, and, uh, uh, and also in the interest of the United States and our international partners to uh, uh, engage with the Taliban in a strategic uh, dialogue to ensure that we, we keep um, uh, the trajectory of, uh, of, the, of the past 18 years. And then we built on that. W- why I emphasize so much on this, it's not just a name. I think, I think um, uh, a, a setback on, on, on a republic system uh, would mean a huge victory, not just for the Taliban, but for so many other uh, groups like the Taliban who carry these Islamic ambitions throughout throughout the world. So, so this might pose national security uh, risks to the U.S. and to and to many other countries throughout the world. Um, so, I, I I believe that in the, in the next eighteen months to two years. There are four fundamental elements to in to um, uh, to a political settlement. If if we are going to get one, first, there has to be ceasefire. Without ceasefire, you can't really uh, you can't really continue talking. The momentum will be lost. Uh, if there is ongoing talks in Doha and ongoing fighting in Kabul, the one in Kabul is going to take the headlines. Um, and Doha and and efforts uh, uh, like Doha, uh, maybe may elsewhere, Norway, um, Germany. Uh, Indonesia, who else? Uh, Uzbekistan, they have all shown interest to host uh, Afga- Afghan dialogues so so ceasefire will fundamentally overshadow the, 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 the peace process. So, so ceasefire is critical as first step. Second step, I think is uh, is an agreement on a transitional government. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily an interim setup or interim government, but a government to implement. Uh, the details of, uh, of, of a political agreement is, is, is very, very important, and, and I believe is inevitable. Not necessarily uh, that you know I support it or I think this is the, this is, this is the best decision for Afghanistan, but I, I really don't think that the Taliban would jump on a running train. So the train must stop at some point, and then, and then you know the new people get on board and then uh, c- continue the journey. So some sort of a, a transitional setup, I, I believe, is critical. Uh, third. Is uh, changing the constitution, changing the constitution of Afghanistan is something that um, uh, uh, the lawyer Jirga, which concluded today, also suggested. So uh, all of us agree to an extent that there are amendments needed. The question is to what degree. I think that's that's not what um, uh, the, uh, I, I think that there, there isn't such a such a great consensus over uh, what the Taliban want uh, or wh- what changes you know we want. And then fourth. Is uh, uh, as I said earlier, is uh, um, agreeing on a political system, um, on h- what kind of a political system Afghanistan might have post uh, post deal. And then my last point is: um, even if all four happens, are we going to get to peace or not? Even if we get the Taliban come to Kabul, you know, r- r- run half the government, if not more, does that mean peace or not? The, the very recent attack in Kabul, uh, uh, which uh, took the entire city of five million people uh, hostage for more than half a day was claimed by Daesh. Taliban said they had, no, they, had they had no role in it. So does it really mean Afghans- uh, Afghanistan is putting steps toward peace? One argument is that of course this is the under- Taliban is the underlying uh, uh, sort of reason uh, for, for instability in Afghanistan. Uh, so it's imp- so, so this, is, this is the biggest step towards peace, but this is not the only step that Afghanistan requires towards uh, uh, getting, a, political, uh, uh, getting a, a, a lasting and sustainable and inclusive mm-hmm. peace. There are so many factors, uh, being social factors, being regional factors, um, uh, and uh, being political factors not necessarily linked to the Taliban, which contribute to the, the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan. So so talking, to, so talking about peace in Afghanistan is, is not just talking about the Taliban, but I think this is just one step forward. I'll stop here. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Um, Scott, Johnny, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be at USIP, and it's a particular privilege to be on this, uh, the least distinguished of this distinguished panel. Um, I've been asked to provide a a justification, a defense, an apologia for the US-led peace process. And asking me to defend the current administration's policy is odd, but I actually uh, believe it and intend to do it. Um, And I think that the beginning of that defense is quite simple. The reason that this peace process makes sense is that it's plausible. As difficult as it is, as many ways in which it might fail, its success is plausible. There is a way to envision going from the current recent steps uh, to a reasonable, decent outcome in Afghanistan. And in fact, it is more plausible, I would suggest, than any other policy that's available to us on the table. It's not as if we are slowly winning the war in Afghanistan. And if only the United States were willing to make the current level of commitment or triple the level of commitment or 100 times the level of commitment for the next 40 years, we would get to the end state in Afghanistan that we would all sort of ideally want in a perfect world. That's just not what's happening right now. Um, If you compare The Afghanistan that I arrived in, in early 2002, to the Afghanistan today, there's obviously been immense economic development. There's been immense social development. You can't make a credible, a plausible case that our intervention over the course of the last two decades has really moved us in sort of an appreciable, positive direction in terms of the political resolution of the underlying conflicts which led us there to begin with. And so the core reason for this peace process is simply choosing the most plausible of a variety of exceptionally difficult, all-quite-possible-to-fail policy options. Um, But because Johnny asked me to talk for five to ten minutes, I won't stop there. Um, I'll I'll very, very briefly identify what I think a plausible, a potentially successful peace process from the current moment could look like. I'm, I'm not going to get into the level of detail. I'm not going to talk about sort of what uh, an, the Afghan settlement might look like in detail, but rather the process. Um, I really think that, that the, an, a settlement in Afghanistan is actually the end state of three separate, somewhat linked peace processes, somewhat linked in the sense that they all have to end together in order to be uh, sustainable, but they don't really need to start together, and they don't necessarily need to move in parallel. The first of the three processes is essentially the U.S.-Taliban bilateral process, the one that Ambassador Khalizad very wisely, and after far too much delay on our part in the Obama administration, on uh, the Bush administration's part, on the Trump administration's part, after far too much de- play, delay, Ambassador Khalizad has gotten started, and that's this one that that that's the trade-off that people have alluded to, where the United States agrees to the troop drawdown and the Taliban agree, essentially to police their, the territory that they influence and control against internationally focused terrorist groups. Um, sadly, that's the easiest of the three peace processes in question. And I say sadly because it's really hard. I mean, there are a lot of divisions on both sides on both of these questions, right? What is a terrorist? What's good enough in terms of Taliban adherence to this deal? What's the timeline for drawdown? There, there's a lot of divisions on, on both sides of the question. And getting to some kind of actual agreement as opposed to sort of the you know greed framework um, that I think not surprisingly was achievable on fairly short order. That's going to be extremely difficult, but still the easiest part. The second part, the one that I imagine we're going to spend most of our time today talking about, is the intra-Afghan peace process. And I just say a couple of words of introduction about this. The first thing I'd say about the the intra-Afghan peace process is that it matters to us Americans as Americans simply because it matters to us as Americans. This is not. A grad school seminar. It's not bloodless. A lot of American blood has been shed over the question of Afghanistan's future. And it is inconceivable for the United States to simply walk away without due consideration to what kind of a arrangement we're making means for the for, for, for Afghans. It also matters to us because it is a it is a core part, I think as you've correctly identified, it is a core part to the sa- sustainability of any security arrangement that we might make with the Taliban. Uh, if what we leave behind is simply phase X of the Afghan civil war, then we'll be right back from a security perspective to where we were in the late 1990s, where the chaos in the country almost forces some side, I can't tell you for sure which side it's gonna be, but some side to invite in and accept the support of internationally focused terrorist groups. So chaos in Afghanistan is the enemy of the sustainable security solution that we are seeking. And I do wanna say, a parenthetical here, which is that one of the things that curses peace processes in general, this peace process in particular, is inflated expectations. Afghanistan is going to be a violent, poor, and poorly governed place for the foreseeable future. The peace process is not going to end that. So you can't say that, that, that you know, we're going to walk away from the table if Afghanistan is not fully at peace and every part of the territory is governed from the center. That's not that's not a reasonable expectation, it's too high a bar, setting that as the bar will ensure failure and some suboptimal outcome. But, um, but some more m- modestly realistic expectation about minimizing, sort of the, minimizing the political violence of the Civil War, that is both achievable and is also necessary for the United States to achieve our security aims. Um, now, what does that mean? First of all, it means kind of a, an equilibrium political solution in Afghanistan. There is a real division of power on the ground. The Taliban are not 10 feet tall. They are not the only people in Afghanistan who control military and economic forces. There is some genuine equilibrium on the ground uh, between the Taliban and non-Taliban forces, the government, the old Northern Alliance, et cetera. A political solution in Afghanistan is one which recognizes that genuine division of powers and creates a political system which in some ways reflects it, so that the cost and the risk to any party from defecting from that solution, from deciding that they are going to seek maximal victory, uh, is so high that it's just less likely that any party chooses to do so. It's, it's, It's easier to accept the imperfect compromise solution than it is to run the risk and pay the cost of defecting from that solution. So that's kind of the nature of the political outcome that Afghans need to try to work out amongst themselves. I would argue that the United States and our international partners have a fair amount of leverage, quite a bit of leverage actually, uh, to use in trying to, to help Afghans reach that outcome. The leverage comes mainly from two things. The first thing it comes from is the U.S. troop presence. Now that might seem ironic given that I've just said that they're sort of the most rapid progress on the uh, uh, negotiated drawdown. But here's the thing. I actually think that the leverage that the U.S. troops give us doesn't have much to do with whether we're talking about 100,000 or 14,000 or 7,000 or, quite frankly, 700 troops. The military force that matters to the Taliban is the counterterrorism force that successfully targets and kills their leadership. And that is not a lot of guys. I Depending on won't give me the exact answer, but it's it's not a lot of guys. And the difference between the sort of you know 14,000-ish that we have right there now and that last core that would come out at the very end of a drawdown in terms of the political leverage on the process is, I think, very close to zero. Our military leverage does not come from the troop-intensive tasks of, for example, training and equipping the Afghan army, which has been largely a failure. So that's the, our, our leverage with the troops stays throughout the drawdown process, I think. And the second thing that our leverage comes from is money. No central government of Afghanistan in the modern era has ever resourced itself internally. The function of a central government in Afghanistan is to take external resources and distribute it to the barons in the field. And so long as the United States and our allies or partners are willing and able to continue to provide much less money than we do now, but much more money than we do to anybody who doesn't have US troops on the ground, um, so long as we're willing to do that, we have substantial leverage both to get to and to sustain, uh, political s- settlements in Afghanistan. Um, I'll say, by the way, parenthetically here, that, um, one of the areas in which I think the State Department has really fallen down is consultation with Congress. Zal hasn't briefed. I don't think that's his fault. And consultation with our allies and partners. Because at some point in the not-too-distant future, if this comes together, those are the two people you're gonna have to go and ask for money. And Asking them on when the train's already moving rather than you know, it, when you're stopped at a station is just, in my experience, much more difficult. Um, and I'll speak most briefly about the last piece of this, which is the regional piece. Uh, every civil war is fundamentally a regional war. Civil wars don't get fought unless the actors have support from abroad. Um, I have this weird sort of atom of optimism in the back of my brain that many of the actors in the region, more so than they have in the past, are willing to accept sort of suboptimal outcomes from their maximalist perspectives in Afghanistan because they're afraid of the potential chaos of a U.S. troop withdrawal. They want to see some kind of outcome. That said, I have, a, they have the other sort of louder concern in the back of my head, which is, are the regional actors going to make their Afghanistan policy qua their interests in Afghanistan, or are they going to, will their Afghanistan policy be driven by their conflict with us? In other words, will Iran say, yeah, we could actually work with this settlement in Afghanistan, but better for us to stick the United States in the eye on the way out? Same with Russia, same with these countries that are not adversaries, but China and India, which we've decided this would be a great time to pick trade wars with. Um, So the question of whether or not it is possible for the administration to prioritize things so so that we can not invite the regional parties to take advantage of kind of a moment of weakness, I think that's a big one. I'm gonna say one last word and then hand over, which is um, you're exactly right that throughout the sorry history of this conflict, this is not the first moment where people have tried to make peace. At almost every moment, somebody has been trying to make peace. If you go back through all of those episodes and you replay the story of the offers that were on the table for, from the perspective of the United States, from the perspective of Afghans, and ask yourself, has the offer ever gotten better? Has the, the offers that we turned down, and we turned them down in 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, were those offers better or worse than what we were then able to, to get in 2009, 2010? In turn, were those offers better or worse than what we were able to get in 2015, 2016? It always gets worse. Our position in this conflict is deteriorating. This is the best moment that we've had since the last moment, and it is better than any moment we will have in the future to try to come to a political settlement. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you. To avoid repeating what was said before me, I'm going to focus on two issues. One is the invisible impact of the ongoing war in Afghanistan, and then Afghan women's efforts to ensure that their rights are protected and uh, Uh, not compromise during the peace process. But before getting into that, um, I would like to uh, discuss or add to Lutfelaar's opening remarks uh, by reminding us all that this week makes um, 41 years of uh, political turmoil, violent conflict, mass displacements, and economic instability in Afghanistan that has affected the lives of three generations. Over the years, uh, there have been lots of talks, rightfully so, about the visible impact of the four decades of war in Afghanistan and the need for a peaceful political settlement. It's clear that Afghan people want peace and we all want peace and stability in Afghanistan. My papers are stuck here. (laughs) Uh, So what's missing in the mainstream uh, conversation is that of the invisible impact of war and how we must look at ways to deal with it now and after a peace agreement is uh, reached. The trauma of war and conflict leaves an oftentimes invisible but lasting effect on people's emotional and mental well-being. Last month, uh, I was in Afghanistan, and I spoke with a diverse number of Afghans, men and women, youth included, about their hopes for peace and also their fears. I kept hearing about the invisible impact of the prolonged war. Many Afghans I talked to told me that they or their family members suffer from anxiety, depression, personality and behavioral problems, having witnessed and being exposed to horrific stories of the aftermath of explosions and bombings. The ongoing war in Afghanistan has not only affected human biology, but it has led to deep and prolonged complications on people's psychological health. We, the international community, must be willing to provide the necessary assistance to help Afghan men and women and children to deal with both the visible and the invisible impact of war. That brings me to my next point, which was also raised by uh, Lutfullah, and that's the need for an immediate ceasefire. While the Afghan government, opposition political leaders and Taliban debate about the number of delegates who should be on the list, who should not be on the list, When and where the talks should take place, Afghans are being killed on a daily basis, every day. Uh, More and more women become widows, children become uh, orphans, and properties are destroyed. So the Taliban and the Afghan government must demonstrate by their actions that they are serious about ending the war and declare a ceasefire. A prolonged ceasefire will boost the public moral and result in unprecedented support for the peace process. Now, on women's issues and concerns. Uh, there are perceived uh, concerns about the perceived consequences of a peace agreement by women and the fear that Taliban might impose restrictions on women's employment, education, mobility, and so on. I think women's concerns are, and should be men's concerns too. And I believe a significant number of Afghan men sympathize with and advocate uh, to preserve the gains of the past 18 years and women's rights. Women's concerns are legit, and we should listen to them, and address and alleviate their concerns to the extent we can. After all, they live through it. They experience the discriminatory practices and unjust and inhuman treatment by different groups and parties in the past many, many years. So what have women done? They have organized in Kabul and also in the provinces, and in many cases, have taken personal risk to voice their concerns. They have made it clear over and over about their red lines. And the international community, and particularly Americans, must use whatever leverage is left there, and we have, with the Afghan government, with the opposition leaders, and with the Taliban, to make sure that Afghans' basic rights that are uh, guaranteed in their constitution are upheld. And if the constitution is to be amended, which is likely, Um, I, I think it must be done in a way that people's rights are improved and not limited. I will end here. Uh,
6: Thanks. Uh, Jared before made the case for our policy. I thought I might try to explain a little bit what the position of the Afghan government is and particularly uh, President Ghani, um, because these positions are not necessarily, uh, aligned. A few days ago, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal sort of pointing out the surreality of the way it was described, us coddling our enemies and um, uh, chiding uh, our allies. And part of the one of the examples that was used was this incident that happened about six weeks ago here in Washington when um, President Ghani's National Security Advisor, Hamdullah Mohib, came, made some public comments that were basically very critical of Ambassador Khalilzad. Our reaction was uh, swift and, and quite severe. And to this day, uh, our diplomats in Kabul are not supposed to attend any meetings or meet with the national security advisor. So we're in a bit of a strange position here where, while supporting uh, Afghanistan's military forces, we're not allowed to speak with uh, Afghanistan's national security adviser. Um, the dissonance here points to a divergence of strategies regarding the peace process, which Uh, could come to a point of collision uh, in the near future. What President Ghani believes, I think he is committed to a peace process. In February of last year, he made this unconditional offer for uh, talks with the Taliban that I think helped lead to the moment that we are now, that helped lead to the appointment of Ambassador Khalilzad. But he has a fundamentally different view of how that should happen. Uh, He wants, I think, uh, to be Fundamentally, to be able to negotiate from a position of strength uh, the Afghan government with the Taliban I think he would rather see the Taliban negotiate their way into the Afghan constitution than to see a new constitution or, or a more of a, a even split when it comes out of the, the blender um, And he wants the Afghan population the Afghan government to be more prepared uh, Hence, for example, the lawyer Jirga that just happened where there's a large round of consultation with Afghans from all over the country to decide, well, what are our red lines? What should our approach be? Who should we be? um, Who should be on our negotiating team? uh, And so forth. So fundamentally, there's a difference of time. Ambassador Khalilzad feels that he's under quite a degree of urgency. Uh, President Ghani does not feel the same degree of, of urgency. And I think that President Ghani is gambling on two things. First, he's gambling on the fact that there will not be a sudden withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan as has been threatened. Um, so he rejects the idea that there's a near deadline under which some kind of an agreement needs to be made. And I think this is why uh, the comments that were made by his national security advisor were allowed to be made. If he, if he was not confident that there was still a long-term commitment uh, to Afghanistan, I don't think these, confident, these comments would have been made. Um, and if they had been made and he didn't want them to be made, I don't think that uh, his national security advisor would still be uh, in place. The second issue is that President Ghani faces re-election in September. And you can see why it would be, or how it would be in his interest to sort of play for time, go to an election, at least win in the first round, or, or be among the two finalists in the first round if there's no, if there's no uh, clear winner, and then basically turn to the U.S. government and say, this is the moment that you're going to withdraw troops. This is the moment that you're going to withdraw your commitment from from, uh, the government. I'm about to be reelected. I'm the best reformer you'll ever see. Uh, I've just got five more years of legitimacy by the Afghan people. um, And basically gamble on that moment to then uh, uh, buy himself more time and then hope at that moment to negotiate from a a position uh, of strength. I think that's the strategy, but there are, two, there are two downsides to the bets that he's made. The first one is about the elections, and my experience, especially having gone through the October parliamentary elections last year, is that President Ghani tends to overestimate what can be done in what period of time to make an election happen, and right now, preparations for the presidential elections, which is scheduled for the 28th of September, are far behind. Uh, in fact, the parliamentary elections are still not resolved. There's still the 33 seats out of 250 for Kabul province that have not been uh, uh, finalized. Um, The parliamentary election was such a disaster last year that the entire electoral commission uh, was replaced. Um, The new commission doesn't have a lot of experience. They still have to make a number of key decisions about registration, about what kind of elections to happen. And we're now less than five months from when uh, these elections are supposed to happen, and we're moving into uh, both the fighting season uh, and Ramadan. Um, so there's not a lot of time to get a lot done, uh, and there's a real possibility, again, speaking to experts who are in Kabul and, and following this closely, that these elections will not happen. That sets up a bit of a crisis because, according to the Constitution, President Ghani's term ends on the 22nd of May. If people believe that elections will be held in September, he can probably by himself uh, a bit of a grace period. If it becomes clear that elections will not happen in September and they can't happen until next spring, then that would be an extra year of his mandate uh, with um, a lot of opposition uh, uh, to him um, and a lot of discontent. And I think that could create a sort of a problem such that we've never seen before. We've always seen delayed presidential elections, but we've never seen a presidential election that did not happen in the year that it was supposed to happen. And opposition politicians are already planning. I understand big demonstrations for the 22nd of May, and we'll see what sort of effect uh, uh, that has, but this would undermine uh, his, his legitimacy. And the second downside is, you know, what if President Ghani has miscalculated about the reaction in the US and about our willingness to, 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 to stay um, no matter what? Somebody wrote an article towards the end of last year saying in September of 2019, every American journalist in Afghanistan is gonna be looking for the first US soldier who's fighting in Afghanistan, who was not born when 9-11 happened. Uh, I think there's a lot of frustration in the US on both sides, as somebody pointed out, it's maybe the only bipartisan issue in Washington right now. Uh, A lot of uh, consensus on trying to unwind our commitment in Afghanistan. Frankly, I would say a lot of frustration as well with the way that our Afghan politician partners have uh, been been, um, uh, perhaps wasted a lot of resources that have been uh, provided on a lot of unnecessary uh, internal squabbles. Uh, So there is a kind of a sense that that time is running out and a certain fragility uh, of the the position here for supporting um, another sort of second term with President Ghani and with significant resources. Um, so the next few months we'll see whether this bet pays off, uh, we'll see which process has more, uh, dynamism, I'll conclude just by saying that I, I agree with Jared on, you know, where we are. I think this is sort of the only real, uh, plausible policy option that we have. Um, and I think that I'd referred earlier to this Wall Street Journal and the surreal aspect of us, uh, being nice to our enemies and, and not nice to our friends. But there's something else which is surreal and that's what uh, Belkis pointed to. Um, the hidden costs and the real costs of, of, uh, of this war, the UN just came out with its civilian casualty figures for the first quarter, 580 killed, 1,192 injured. This is a lot of civilian casualties and it's 23% down from the same period last year, perhaps as a result of some of these movements on the, on the peace process, but it's still very, very high. And I imagine a lot of Afghans themselves are asking, uh, or thinking that it may be a bit surreal that while this destruction is happening, we're talking about where we should meet, what the venue should be, uh, what the format should be uh, and, and, and so forth. So uh, I think that fact alone puts me on the side of urgency uh, in trying to move this peace process forward rather than uh, a consolidation of, of uh, the second term and, and the constitution, thank you.
2: Great, thank you all. Uh, That was truly impressive on all counts. I'd say um, we've gone fairly deep on the United States perspective, on the Afghan government perspective. Maybe we could talk about the Taliban a little bit. And um, so much of this hinges on whether we're looking at a meaningfully different Taliban than we saw in the 1990s, whether it's on women's rights, on democracy, on uh, sharing of power, on terrorism. And so uh, I like very short questions. And in the interest of setting a positive example to any of your interrogators among the audience, have the Taliban changed? And what kind of deal do they want? And maybe I could start with Belkis.
5: Have the Taliban changed? I have been asked this question so many times, especially in the recent months. I think Taliban have been consistent with their views and attitudes uh, at least toward women and women's rights. Since their formation in 1994, they have been saying that um, they are committed to guaranteeing women's rights according to Sharia and Afghan traditions. Well, now the question is, uh, nowadays when they say, repeat the same statement, if they mean a different interpretation of Sharia? Or is it the same interpretation as they had in 1994, 1996, where they enforced that interpretation through physical violence, intimidation, and the humiliation of countless of women and girls? So I just want to focus on uh, Taliban's views on women for now.
3: Anyone else care to weigh in? If you talk about individuals within the Taliban, you may have a different uh, con- conclusion. There are people that we in the press talk to. Uh, some of them, you know, relatively uh, accommodating, taking criticism, being open to uh, you know questions, and some of them are uh, pretty straight straightforward. Uh, so this is about people within the Taliban group. But I think the main question is, what defines Taliban as a brand? And that is the fundamental question, because when you try to make a political settlement with the Taliban as a group, I think the dilemma for the Taliban is how to change from a military group, which sees things black and white, to a political group, to have a wide range of issues, to deal with so many issues. And then I think it would be very difficult for the Taliban to make that transition, especially overnight. So, um, uh, w- which I believe is is uh, is going to come with you know serious costs to the Taliban.
7: So
4: um, I'd actually challenge the question. Uh, two things can change to get a different outcome. One thing that can change is the Taliban, and one thing that can change is the situation in which the Taliban find themselves. So. I would hypothesize that if the Taliban face a situation as they did in the mid-1990s of a collapsing alternative order that essentially creates a vacuum that sucks them into every part of the country, they'll probably behave more or less as they did in the 1990s. If they do not face a collapsing, in this instance, bond order, if they face a more organized opposition, and again, with the use of international leverage, you're able to get to a kind of equilibrium uh, political solution which reflects the, the changed circumstances on the ground, then the ch- then their decision point is very different. Um, and they might want a maximalist victory if they see it that way, that looks like 1996, but they can't have it, and so they'll live with something else. Um, the, the big, I think the, the biggest, f- from, from my perspective, there are lots of things to be afraid about for Afghans, there are a lot of things to be afraid about for Afghan women. The the thing to be most afraid of is the implosive collapse of the bond order, which basically comes if the United States pulls the plug with nothing else organized, right? And so that's why, and I agree with Scott, we probably agree too much up here, it's not that interesting. I I mean, I agree with Scott, I think that, that uh, President Ghani is throwing the dice on a couple of issues and boy, I wouldn't be throwing the dice, right, because the, you're, you're, you're gambling a lot in terms of your ability to sustain this political order and negotiate a better outcome than the mid-1990s.
6: Maybe just add quickly that, you know, part of the change that we need to be asking ourselves regarding the Taliban is, you know, why would they stop fighting when they appear to be having the momentum? Um, and when you speak to those who are close to the Taliban movement, maybe not part of it right now, you know, one of the more interesting answers I've heard is, you know, because we're tired. And the fact is, um, for, uh, all of the, the problems that we have on the, the Afghan national security forces for all of the, um, uh, attrition that is happening on that side in most of these battles, the Taliban are being killed more than, uh, Afghan national army soldiers. They're able to replenish easier. Um, but. I think we've sort of forget that side of the picture, that uh, it's, it's you know, also debilitating for them and it's not the nicest way to live if you could come to some sort of uh, agreement where as one of them put it to me, we just wanna go back and live in a land which is you know, familiar to us. And that land is not full of uh, US soldiers. Um, that land may have other elements that are uh, uh, maybe unfortunately familiar um, but that's sort of a case for perhaps why they might make this engagement and, and look for uh, real compromises, uh, not just a, a maximalist position. Can add one more point,
5: Please. So a lot has happened in the past 18, 20 years, and I think the Taliban needs to be brought up to speed. And what practical way, what other practical ways to bring them at, up to speed is, one is to. Um, Ambassador Khalilzad to explain to them what has changed in the past 18, 20 years. But I think a more practical way would be to to bring them up to speed is to facilitate formal as well as informal dialogue between Afghan women and the Taliban. Today, women are active participants in politics, justice, security, health, education, art and culture. They are active in private sector and millions of women are now breadwinners of their families, um, unlike 20 years ago when they were in power, um, when female professional engineers, scientists, teachers, and lawyers were uh, forced to beg on the streets in Kabul because employment was not allowed. And today, they are earning their income through hard work uh, um, and gaining an ever-increasing sense of uh, personal dignity. So they need to be brought up to speed that things have changed. Thank you.
2: Thank you all. I'm tempted to monopolize the mic a little longer, but maybe I will open it to the crowd. I can't remember if I mentioned, but I like short questions. <laughs> so if we could go to uh, the gentleman over here. My colleague, Matt, will be passing microphones around. and. Um, We'll start with one at a time and maybe yep. soon. i uh, try
7: trying to make it short, yeah. Uh, Phil Schrafer, uh, first quick comment. Uh, Holly Sade, I think he's doing a great job, born in Afghanistan, of course, in Ghani, and I think he's doing a great job. Uh, Mark raised two points, which I want to uh, just get feedback on. One, the U.S. Army. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Special Forces are doing a job. But they're not passive. I, I think uh, General McDonald is, after 17 years, he's ready to move out, assuming the Taliban... Will hold uh, uh, Al Qaeda and and Daesh in control. So so that so he's, you know I mean the Secretary of Defense is doing nothing. So okay. The other thing is on the regional powers. Moscow has had at least three meetings. Okay, and I think Russia, uh, uh, Moscow participated. Uh, the Pakistanis have pushed it. They might might have invited the. But uh, 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 well anyway, they, we, they did invite us eventually, and we and we we turned it down. Um, Warlords, okay? Nobody mentions warlords, because like maybe that's the Northern Alliance, but 20% of the country is probably controlled by by warlords, and, and one of the governors was a warlord, and he was fired. So, comments, please.
2: <laughs> Volunteers? <laughs> uh,
4: so, I'll, I'll, take a, I'll, I'll just say a very brief thing, which is I think you have accurately described. The kind of messy situation that exists on the ground right now, and the, that that you have to bear that in mind when contrasting it with any with what comes next. You've got a messy situation. The situation that follows is also going to be messy and imperfect. Um, part of this involves getting your head straight in terms of what the expectations are, but also to be clear, it can be a little bit easier to negotiate from messy situation to messy situation, right? Like there is already a twenty-year pathway in Afghanistan of dealing with local military powers, and it needs to be taken advantage of.
6: I'll Just, oh, yeah. just a quick point on, 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 on the warlords, because it reminded me of another reason why there's an incentive also for the, for the Taliban to negotiate, which is um, if there were, and, and again, I don't think it's likely, but if there were a rapid, sudden uh, U.S. withdrawal, and we're back to a situation of the 90s where the Taliban had to fight a civil war. They would be fighting it against um, sort of resurrected uh, warlords who, uh, directly as opposed to right now where they fight against, you know, a national army which is uh, sort of being supported by us. Uh, and that, in the end, could be a much nastier fight than, than the one they're
5: doing right now.
2: The gentleman over here.
5: Thank you. Atanasip, uh, former USIP. Um, uh, I was supposed to be on the same plane uh, to Doha as uh, but we got stood up. Um, uh, my question is to as well. Um, uh, it goes back to your second point uh, about uh, transitional setup. I know you clearly didn't say interim government, but I frankly find that as a little confusing. Uh, uh, you also mentioned that peace is not a new phenomenon in Afghanistan. Uh, so is uh, transitional uh, setup. Uh, we're not going back two or three steps back, we're going back to 1992. We saw this movie played out before, and we we saw how that ended up. So um, I wanted a little bit of clarification on that point as well from you.
3: I think there's a huge risk, um, uh, as you you may suggest, uh, that we uh, try to uh, go back to square one without having a clear vision of which direction we're We're going. I totally understand that, but there are look there there are three scenarios, right? The best deal, best deal is you get the Taliban talk to the Afghan government. You know, not 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 the very best deal is to get the Taliban talk to all Afghans, uh, mostly those outside the government, and then probably not a deal probably a deal, but certainly not not peace, is to uh, uh, transfer power to the Taliban, which is going to result into civil war. So my understanding is that the United States policy at the moment is to engage with the government of Afghanistan as a group, among other groups, uh, to talk to the Taliban. Uh, You may have noticed President Trump's State of the Union speech in which he said that uh, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, all political groups, including the government, as a group, are talking to the Taliban. So, if that is the policy of the U.S., then I would say, you know, if they make progress with the Taliban, then, in you know, my understanding, is some sort of a, a transitional setup uh, is inevitable. Is, is is part of the package, but 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 I wish. You know, that we get a deal in which the Taliban come and talk to our legitimate elected government uh, and then uh, uh, accept uh, all our gains. And then they can uh, join the elections and then become our president uh, and, you know, become the chief executive in in case we couldn't agree on who (laughs) the president to be. Uh, or be as many ministers, you know, as they can. I, I really don't think this is, you know, this is, uh, um, this is the case at the moment. I don't think we're talking about, you know, the best the best deal option.
2: We go down to the front.
0: Least to set BBC. Thank you very much. Um, after Doha, no Doha, there are some Afghans, as you know, who say, better not to hold them in Qatar, Qatar's part of the problem. Many other countries want to host the talk, so some are saying perhaps best move them back to Bonn to get them out of the regional rivalries. Is that an option? Or because of the Taliban relationship to Qatar, do they have to stay in Qatar? Secondly, today Ashraf Ghani has said, what I want is not a negotiating army, i.e. 250 people. I want a negotiating team. What is the best negotiating team for Afghanistan? As you saw, all the old warlords of the past are wanting to be on the negotiating team. Does that mean there's no space for the young, educated Afghans, for the women who can help to move uh, the country forward? Because it's the other war in Afghanistan between the, the Afghans of the past and the Afghans of the future that seems to also be creating problems in this trying to talk to the Taliban.
4: Chair. Sure. So um, on the first question, I, I, to be perfectly honest, uh, I think people get, st- spun around the axle of Doha somewhere else. Um, the the people who the United States and Afghans need to speak to, the Taliban team they need to speak to, are this going to be the same people, whether they're sitting in Doha or sitting in Bonn. Um, my guess is that if this process gets underway, it probably ends up being a little bit of a movable feast. I mean, they've already done it once in Moscow. They tried to do it in Doha. If it goes to Bonn, that's fine. Um, I think the idea that the Qataris are a you know, baleful influence on this, just overstates, vastly overstates their role. So I, I think that, I would bracket that as that question. On the, I, I'd just like to, I'd say a word about this question of sort of negotiating teams, because I think that, and, and maybe refer back also to some of the points that Scott made. Um, I think that uh, in many ways, President Ghani is an inspiring figure Um, he has also been dealt a very bad hand and he's played it very badly. Um, and there he's, he's really made two, I think, tremendous mistakes, which have undermined his and the government's position in trying to establish and trying to set this up. The first mistake that he made was to publicly advertise division with the United States. The government of Afghanistan's main source of strength is its relationship with the United States. Even if President Ghani was dissatisfied with the way that the United States was proceeding, that was something to be sorted out in quiet. As soon as he made it public that Zal wasn't listening to him, I, I think he exaggerated, by the way, but as soon as he made that public, he vastly diminished his own and his government's role in this process. Um, and then the, the second mistake that he's made is to try from that relatively weakened position to demand full ownership of it, right? I mean, so, having this 250-person delegation come and sit at his feet in Kabul and instructing them that they were to go and represent the Afghan government when the Taliban had said they wouldn't meet, they would meet with members but not representatives of the Afghan government. Um, Going ahead with this Loya Jirga, despite the boycott of essentially every non-Ghani political figure, none of these are, are, these are not displays of unity and strength. They're displays of Ghani's own weakness in the process and i think we need to recognize that where that leaves anybody trying to assist the afghan dialogue is that that whether or not it needed to be this way the afghan government really is one of many non-taliban <laughs> forces it is a powerful one it has a military it's got a variety of structures that no other force has but it is only one and i i think it's unlikely at this stage with you know legitimacy sort of you know three weeks away from disappearing and I think it's very unlikely that you can recover that. Last thing I would say, uh, just on this point, is that from the perspective of kind of that legitimation, I think almost the only thing that would be worse than not having an election in September would be having an election in September. Because, I mean, again, just look at the history of this. There has not been an, an election in the, since, there's not been an election since the first bond cycle that has enhanced the legitimacy of the bond order. Every single election has weakened the bond order. If you go to this election in September, in the current situation, the what emerges from it, I think, just the the puzzle pieces become that much more difficult.
3: I think they are trying to organize another meeting in in Qatar. Uh, Ambassador Khalidal said last week uh, on the record that we're not going to humiliate a nation for making a mistake. So uh, my understanding is that you know they are really trying to organize. Uh, a conference, probably not for 250 people, but 150 people, or or, or or less. On the negotiating team, there are two ideas. One idea is that you know you have this pool of 100 people, 200 people, uh, and then based on the topic, you pick. Let's say if it's about ceasefire, you send you know the military experts. If it's about uh, uh, women's rights, you know you send uh, a, m- a more uh, uh, you know a, a, a dominant group of women activists. If it's about uh, the, the the political system, and then you send you know the the, the political leaders or or the Islamic scholars, so so that's one idea, but the government is more uh, pro a specific team of handpicked uh, seven to fifteen people uh, who can be permanent, uh, like the Taliban team, um, uh, and, uh, and then they d- then they go and discuss uh, you know A to Z uh, with the Taliban. Uh, m- my understanding is that there is no uh, agreement on which model. Uh, is is best or should be uh, accepted?
5: Please. (coughs) I think the composition of the Afghan government's list of delegates or negotiation team has been and continues to be an issue. Uh, In addition to government (coughs) representatives or officials, I believe in order for that to be an inclusive list, uh, civil society has to be presented. Uh, Represented as well as um, uh, the private sector, both men and women from these sectors civil society, private uh, sector, as well as victims. It seems that the Taliban uh, delegation um, includes um, former detainees and prisoners, which they label as victims. So it's important that the delegation does not only include. Government ministers and officials, but also other sectors within Afghan society who have been affected by um, the past two decades of war. And we must also not forget uh, that minorities, both um, religious minorities as well as other uh, uh, groups who have been marginalized over the years.
6: And then, uh, very quickly, I think at these stages of peace processes, there's a tendency to be overly prescriptive. Uh, we need to, we don't really know what's on the Taliban agenda. So we don't know how we would divide if we went with a model of a sort of a specialist, what kinds of specialists uh, would have to be um, uh, recruited for this sort of thing. And that was what's a bit unfortunate about this opportunity that was missed in Doha, was it would have been the first time where you begin to have the substantive discussion after which uh, you could then begin deciding what, what model is most appropriate. Um, that doesn't get us past the fundamental problem or one of the fundamental problems, which is a huge lack of distrust among the Kabul Afghans, which is why they all need to be included. Um, And you had this paradox when, you know, this famous team of 250 people has been referred to. uh, And on the one hand, people say, you know, 250 people, this is way too big. And on the other hand, you have another, 2,500 people saying, but we should have been included. So it's uh, hard to to, to, um, uh, wrap our heads around that dilemma.
2: I think we'll start with Tom, and then after that, maybe we'll take a few at a time.
7: Hi, Tom West. I had a question about the the list of presidential candidates who've declared so far. I just wondered if the the panel had views on whether any of the tickets that currently exist Will
4: produce or is capable of producing a kind of government that, in Jared's word, um, acknowledges the genuine distribution of power within Afghanistan. Uh, if not, are we inexorably headed toward another mediated outcome uh, post September?
6: Scott. Yeah, I mean, uh, for, first, you know, once again, I agree with Jared that probably having an election is worse than uh, not having one. The curious thing about this election is, it was supposed to be held in April and then it was postponed to July. Uh, before it was postponed, the candidate lists were, were consolidated. So normally you would have a period of several months between finalizing your candidate list and then going to the election. Now we have almost you know nine months uh, in which there can be either uh, candidates dropping out, perhaps consolidation of certain tickets. Um, this is all sort of uh, uncharted territory. But to your point specifically, I think that it would not be a bad opposition strategy to actually try to do exactly that, to try and have, you know, a team that goes up against an incumbent president, uh, with a very specific agenda opposed by a team that might have a more amorphous agenda, but is clearly representative, uh, of the, of the, um, of the nation and the various political tendencies. But it goes back to the point I just made, whether they can overcome their amount of distrust to sort of figure out who would be on that team is is uh, is an open question. And they didn't when there was a chance in the first sort of uh, formulation of, of, of candidates. There had been a movement to try to get behind a single uh, team uh, and they proved uh, unable to do that.
2: Anyone else care to... All right, maybe there was a forest of hands last time. So maybe we'll go to a lightning round. We'll go here and then uh, to the gentleman here second. and the gentleman next to our first question or third, and we'll
8: try and do another one. Thank you very much. Um, I'm an African-American journalist, Marina Fazl, nice to see you, Mr. Najafi A few questions for you. Um, I understand that the access to this meeting was not as open as our colleagues would have wished, if you could comment on that for the uh, um, and. What, in terms of Afghanistan's neighbors and the foreign dynamic we just spoke about, um, there are worse and worse scenarios. If we had taken the potential peace offer in 2002, it would have been better than later on ones. and perhaps this is the best we can get before it deteriorates further. Um, You have dealt, or some of your colleagues in Afghanistan have dealt with the Taliban. Uh, it seems that we're all sitting and guessing about who are the Taliban, what are their demands, if they finally work through... me your question, please. Yes, have if to they work through these details of what they want out of a negotiated peace, what might they spell out? In terms of women's rights and freedom of press, and what kind of Islam they want for Afghanistan. Could you please comment, Mr. Najafizadeh?
2: We'll take a second and third beforehand.
1: Uh, sure. OK, so my first question is from Najee Fizal. So uh, what do you think really the Afghan side, like uh, the government and the political parties are really ready and are willing to, to go to peace talks? And the, the, do they came to agreement, with the procedure, to go to peace talks? And then my second question from Scott. S- so do you guys feel that the U.S. is like rushing to make a deal like in a couple of months and get out of the Afghanistan? Do you guys just feeling I'm, I'm not, I'm just wondering? Thank you.
3: And then? Um, hello, everybody. My name is Abdul Nijrabi. So my question is
5: from Bulqis Ahmadi. Um, uh, Afghan diaspora in Moscow, uh, the meeting that they initiated uh, intra Afghan dialogue, it was a good move. So, just a quick question: That what role do you see Afghan diaspora playing in peace negotiations? Afghan diaspora in Washington D.C. Thank you. We'll
2: start with Lutfullah because you got two.
3: I think I agree that Loyjurga, in terms of its uh, media coverage, could have been planned uh, and executed better. But uh, this government uh, in Kabul, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I criticize it a lot in Kabul. So. I tend not to do so here, but uh, uh, I agree that uh, there were difficulties for media to to uh, to go there. Uh, but th- there was uh, live coverage of uh, the um, opening sessions and the, and the, and the concluding sessions yesterday. Um, what Taliban, what the Taliban's views are on women and media? Uh, we We've heard a lot, but one thing that I heard out of Moscow. I think that was said publicly, that the Taliban said three things are not acceptable for us, for women. One, women cannot be president. Second, women, women cannot be judge to um, 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 you know, issue um, uh, an execution order or a verdict. Third, women cannot be imam. So, so this was discussed privately in Moscow, uh, as the Taliban's uh, reading of Islam. Um, and um, uh, if you talk to other Islamic scholars, I debated it uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Usama uh, Sayyaf in Kabul, and he had you know a totally different uh, uh, look at it. Uh, so uh, I think I think it is important for uh, people like Sayyaf, you know, who has a totally different view, and then the Taliban to set together, uh, and then we come to a, a common understanding of of what Islam says about women. Um, on media, I think the Taliban have used uh, uh, the uh, uh, privilege of uh, free media in Afghanistan for the past 18 years, probably sometimes too much. Uh, and uh, we've always been criticized by uh, our government uh, in Afghanistan for giving Taliban too much coverage. Uh, but that was entirely uh, an editorial decision uh, by, by free press in Afghanistan. So. Uh, um, uh, on I think on the political side to be honest it it really it really depends on what kind of what kind of deal we get um, uh, if we get let's say uh, i'm just guessing if if uh, the future political system in Afghanistan includes a body above the government which is untouchable let's say then it would be difficult for us uh, it would be difficult for the future um, uh, uh, of media in Afghanistan to really talk about them, um, I'm not saying that's that's coming. I'm not saying I've heard it fr- uh, 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 from from credible sources, but I'm just guessing. Uh, you know what what kind of what kind of uh, a mixture uh, a Taliban setup and and an Islamic Republic setup would look lo- would look like. Um, on entertainment and social um, uh, programs, on uh, let's say singing competitions, music shows. I think the Taliban. You know, uh, we we need to engage with them. Uh, we need to sit down with them. Uh, I think one of the reasons that uh, some some of the uh, media representatives were interested to uh, attend the Doha talks as as participants, or to discuss some of these issues with the Taliban, uh, um, to see if there are, if there are common grounds.
6: Uh,
3: Scott, would you like to take it?
6: Yeah, I think it may not be so much. There's a, there's a, a rush to remove troops. I think there's a rush to determine some sort of clarity about uh, our engagement in Afghanistan and particularly about how that can be uh, unwound. Um, and given that the state building model heavily resourced that we've been pursuing for the last 20 years has sort of, I think, reached the, the, the end um, of, its, of its usefulness, some sort of disengagement is the, the only remaining option. Um, and ambassador Hadozad has spoken of a need to get an agreement quickly. I actually think if we can get a process, which is established, uh, that has an agenda where the, the, the two sides are actually speaking to each other, that possibly has a third party, uh, mediator, um, then, then that would buy more time. And, and, and the process would require time to go through some of the many complicated issues, such as the ones that, it, that were just mentioned. Um, So I think establishment of a process would be sufficient and would uh, ease things down. if it can be done also in an atmosphere of a reduction of violence or even better, a ceasefire, then um, that's probably the best outcome uh, for now. And that would probably allow a continuing um, uh, rational engagement.
2: And Belkis? Um,
5: What can the Afghans do? Uh, Well, first of all, uh, when I talk to Afghans inside Afghanistan, when I go there, They uh, appreciate, and they see, or they saw the Moscow meeting as a first step uh, to open the doors for further inter-Afghan dialogue, so that was a good initiative. But what can Afghans do? My simple answer would be, and that goes not only for Afghans, but also for Americans, because peace and stability in Afghanistan is linked to our national interest, uh, national security here in the U.S. as well. Do whatever you can to social media, promote and support peaceful resolution to conflict in Afghanistan, and um, to the extent possible, well, avoid, not to the extent possible, avoid stirring um, ethnic um, uh, tensions. I I see that, unfortunately, a lot by Afghans in diaspora, uh, sitting in the comfortable places in the West, and they are the ones who are stirring um, ethnic tension uh, to hate speeches and so on on social media.
2: Thank you. Uh, so with deep regrets, uh, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. And I'm going to cut it off there. I think before we go, just footstop something Jarrett in particular said, which is that as hard as this is, this is possible. It's plausible. It's actually the most plausible of any of the remotely favorable outcomes that could come to this country and that applies equally for the interests of every party to this conflict. And so, I hope they all see it that way. I think they're coming to. Could you please join me in thanking our four outstanding panelists?
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org/podcasts.